Welcome to All About Capital Campaigns, a podcast that provides fuel for your nonprofit's growth. Each week, hosts Andrea Kilstedt and Amy Eisenstein, co-founders of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, provide practical tips about raising more money for your nonprofit organization. The Capital Campaign Toolkit is a support system for nonprofit leaders who are running capital campaigns. At CapitalCampaignToolkit.com, you can download a step-by-step guide for your capital campaign and get many other free resources. This podcast is recorded on a live webinar every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can join the live session and get your questions answered by signing up today at ToolkitTalks.com. So let's go ahead and introduce our special guest today, Andrea. Um, why don't we each say something, you know, about how we know Sarah, and then we'll let her, you know, tout some of her amazing credentials. But I'll go first, and then Andrea, I'll let you. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with Sarah Durham from Big Duck, uh, she is one of the leaders in nonprofit branding and communications, and she is an author, a speaker, a trainer, a consultant, and really um, an extraordinary, extraordinary person. And she has been a colleague and mentor of mine for almost, I guess, a decade. And uh, yeah, a decade. I think we're close. We're probably getting close to a decade, right, Sarah? Um, And she's, you know, she's a a woman business owner that I personally look up to in our space. And I can't wait to have an extraordinary conversation with her today. Um, Andrea, what would you like to add about our guest? Well, before I add, I just have to tell Sarah, because she'll enjoy this, that one of the people who comes on this call regularly is Nana from Georgia, only she's not from the state of Georgia. She's from the country of Georgia. So we're always excited to see her on this on this call. It always gives me a gives me a little bit of zing of pleasure. So, (laughs) Sarah, I can't remember how I met you, but I met you a long time ago. Do you remember? I mean, I think I might have met you and Amy both through AFP conferences. I think it might be through AFP initially. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, I have, when, when Sarah, Sarah and I were just talking, her daughters are now seniors in high school. Is that right, Sarah? And when I first met her, they were small enough so that she was not keen on going out to dinner because she and her husband had decided they wanted to be home with their kids all the time because they were little twin girls. So anyway, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Sarah. She really is remarkable. And every time I speak with her, I learn things I haven't thought about before. So. All right, Sarah, so your turn. Why don't you fill in any blanks that we missed in terms of your credentials and then um, get us started on the topic of nonprofit fundraising communications. Great. All right. Well, thank you for doing that. Put your Q and A. Put your questions in the Q and A box. Chat in right. questions. Yes, yes. Yeah. So what I Don't will do is I'm going to tell. I'm going to. I'm going to. By way of my introduction, what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about the the kinds of things that I have been doing for a while and the areas that I consider uh, in my wheelhouse, um, so that you can chat in. I mean, as as Amy and Andrea have have. Uh, 
no doubt said over and over again, this is a forum for you. And the goal here is to keep this a fluid kind of, you know, open conversation. Um, so Big Deck is a communications firm that I started um, 28 years ago. And, um, and for 28 years, we have been helping nonprofits communicate more effectively. The kind of the thinking or the strategy behind that is that as a nonprofit trying to advance a mission, you have to communicate. You have to communicate with donors, with board members, with clients, with sometimes people in your community, sometimes policymakers. And communications in a nonprofit can be very complicated, sometimes very siloed. Um, sometimes very challenging to align the communications or marketing objectives with the fundraising objectives or the advocacy objectives. And so for 28 years, we at Big Duck have been helping nonprofits do that to develop a sort of strategic way to communicate and to specifically develop their voice as an organization their, or their brand. Um, branding is a loaded word, but it's a word that... Um, I think is useful in this context. Um, I wrote uh, along the way two books. One of them is called Brand Raising, and we can talk about that. We can talk about what brand raising means. Um, the subtitle here is How Nonprofits Raise Visibility and Money Through Smart Communications. Um, another area of the work we do at Big Duck is helping build communications team capacity in-house. So if you are a, a fundraising person, you're a development officer, and you are also responsible for your organization's communications, or you're working on a capital campaign, but you're trying to figure out how you should collaborate with those folks in marketing or communications, that's another thing we do. Um, and, uh, and I have a new book, which maybe we'll talk about more today, called The Nonprofit Communications Engine. And this book is subtitled A Leader's Guide to Managing Mission-Driven Marketing and Communications. And I wrote this book and the work we do at Big Duck around this is basically predicated on the fact that oftentimes development people are in charge of communications and sometimes not sure how to do that. No, they know how to fundraise, but they don't always know how to think about some of the other aspects that can make communications um, advance the mission in other ways. And then the third area of work that we do a lot of at Big Duck is campaign specific communications. So we develop a lot of um, capital campaign communications. Typically the campaigns we work on, we are helping our clients raise lots and lots of money. A typical campaign for us is you know, $250 million or up. A $25 million campaign would be a small campaign for us to work on. That's because hiring an agency like us is expensive. And if you're trying to raise $2 million or $3 million, that's awesome. You probably shouldn't spend a lot of money on external communications. It's one of the reasons you're here. It's one of the awesome things about the capital campaign toolkit. Um, but along the way, working on many, many very large campaigns, including I think $3 billion campaigns, um, we have learned a lot about how do you write a case for support? How do you design a case for support? How do you get people to feel inspired and motivated to give. And I think actually maybe six months ago or so, you heard from my colleague, Claire Taylor Hansen. For those of you who are regulars, Claire showed up here and she talked a bit about uh, capital campaign communications specifically, but we can get more into that today too. Um, so, um, so we do brand raising, we do campaigns and we do communications team building. And I would be happy to dig into any of those things if people have questions. And if people don't have questions, what I can also do is sort of kick us off just to 
you know, spark a little a little fire here, perhaps. And um, I can I kick us off with some of the theory behind the nonprofit communications engine, just to give you a little bit of food for thought. Um, but Amy and Andrea, what do you think? Where should we start? Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask you, what are the most common themes you hear from clients, from nonprofits, and keeping in mind that probably the majority of the people on the call, Sarah, are smaller, you know, running $25 million campaigns or under. So, you know, they probably can't afford big duck services. Maybe they'll get there someday. Um, But, you know, what are, so what are the most common challenges, frustrations, issues that you hear coming up again and again, repeatedly for nonprofits? And, you know, what's your top advice, I guess, you know, maybe we're jumping the gun here, but, you know, for a smaller mid-sized organization, somebody that is doing a lot of it or maybe has one communications person in-house or the development director is the communications person, what what would you suggest? Yeah, sure. Well, well, um, well, first of all, just for context, while the capital campaigns we work on tend to be huge, the organizations we work with are not always huge. It's very common for us to work with organizations with annual operating budgets of, Two million and up, um, and if you are an organization with uh, an operating budget of let's say less than a million dollars, chances are you don't have a full-time communications person on staff. But once your operating budget is over a million or two or even three, you start to develop a communications function in-house. Sometimes it's it's married with development. Sometimes it's a separate function, and um, and. Actually, there's a lot I could say about that. There's a lot of interesting research that Kibi LaRue Miller has done about this in her nonprofit trends report um, and a lot of things we've worked on about that. But, you know, to go back to your original question, Amy, what are some of the themes or challenges? The thing that I have heard more than anything else in my 28 years working with nonprofits is we are a best kept secret. Um, it is, you know, my organization is a hidden gem. When yeah. you when you come to tour our programs or you really get to know us, you would be amazed. It's magical. If I could just get a donor to come on the tour, they would be a donor for life. Um, but very often organizations feel that they are a best kept secret and they don't know how to um, how to get the word out. And yes, you know what um, Karen's saying? She said those exact words yesterday. Exactly. I bet a lot of people are feeling that way, right? We are the best kept secret in our community, in our state, in our region. Um, Good. So what do you say to them? What's, I mean, I think there's a, I think that it's, first of all, it's useful to remember what the purpose of communications is in a nonprofit and, and, and to leverage communications to get out of that situation. So, so the definition of communications is that in a nonprofit, it's the practice of creating and sustaining mindshare and engagement. Mindshare is about the kind of space in our minds that it's awareness, but it's not just awareness. It's sort of understanding and connection to an organization. So if you're best kept secret, it's because not enough people in your mind have built mindshare with your organization. But mindshare is only as good as it can be used to get people to take an action. If I've heard of your organization, but I never sign up, I never donate, I never show up, really, what good is it doing you? So mindshare and engagement have to go hand in hand. And one way to think about it is that to build mindshare and to build engagement, particularly mindshare, you have to have a clear message. You have to know 
know what you're trying to communicate. And you have to have a powerful megaphone. You have to have ways to communicate that. So I was talking just the other day, I think I, I think it was Friday, I was speaking to a nonprofit where again, the executive director said to me, we do this awesome work. We're so great. Nobody's ever heard of us. But actually when I looked at their website and when I talked to him and actually speaking to another person on their staff, the way they describe their work is very clear. It's very compelling. The website looks great. I understood what they did. I, I really, when I when I looked at, at, at their organization, I did not see a big problem from the outside. I thought, wow, a tiny little organization really has their act together with communications. The problem in their case was not the message, it's the megaphone. They were, you know, and they are not emailing regularly. The, the average mid-size or larger nonprofit sends about 60 emails a year. That's a lot of emails. That's one or more a week. Um, the average organization that has built a lot of Mindshare is using all kinds of multi-channel communications. They might be using social media. They might be using email. They might be having webinars. They might be doing all kinds of different things to um, not only to create Mindshare so people have heard of them, but to maintain it. Once I've, once I've heard of you and I've come to your gala or your event, if I then don't hear from you for weeks or months, that mindshare you established in my mind at the gala starts to fade away. So, um, so think about your, your message. How's that doing? Is it strong and clear and compelling? That's the branding piece of the brand raising piece. And think about your megaphone. How are you getting that message out there? What are you doing to communicate? And are you doing it in a consistent, sustained way that's really building momentum towards um, making sure that you build Mindshare and that you get people to take action through engagement. Yeah, I think that's so, so important. I see questions have started to come in. Andrea, do you wanna ask a question before we turn it over to some of the audience questions? You know, I, 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 I'm not sure if I should ask this question, Sarah. It's a, it's a renegade Uh-oh. question. It's a renegade question. I too have heard again and again, you know, we are the best kept secret, right? And honestly, my brain always goes negative when I hear it, because for many organizations, it doesn't matter if everybody in the world has heard about them, right? That that what matters is that the people who, for whom they are relevant has heard about them. Absolutely. so the issue of mindshare, I think, I mean, I think it's really important to reach the people who, for some reason or another, have a reason to want to use your services or to, but, you know, or to rely on you or to contribute to you. But that would be your mindshare. And I think many times when people say we're the best kept secret, they want everyone to know who they are. And that's just a misguided. So I guess my question to you is when you think about mindshare, how, how do you think about audience, about what, how an organization should really know if they, if they have enough visibility or not? Yeah, I love that question. It's not a renegade question. It's actually really, really insightful. And I I totally agree with you. Most organizations do not need the person walking down the street to be familiar with their mission. So so in the book, The Nonprofit Communications Engine, I have a little framework. I'm going to hold it up here. Let's see if you can. Can you see that? Yeah, but we're going to, Sarah, we're going to describe it for the people that are listening on the podcast. Great. So it's, con, uh, is it called concentric circles? Is that what those circles yes, are? In concentric between? circles. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. so read out what it says, because lots of people okay. are listening via podcast and can't see it. 
Yeah, so it's it's three concentric circles, and I'll explain kind of the theory behind this, which is which is at the root of Andrea's question. But then, uh, but then we'll talk about how you approach it. Um, so the theory behind this is, you know, to build mindshare, you have to start by thinking about who must you engage with to advance your mission. So if you are, for instance, a community-based organization that exists to help people in. Um, let's say in a particular neighborhood with uh, food insecurity, right? Who must you engage with? Well, from a mission point of view, you need to engage with people in the neighborhood who might have some food insecurity issues. You might also need to engage with electeds or community board advocates. You might also need to engage with people who wanna support that community for whatever reason. That's the inner circle. So who is the must engage with at the core? That Those are definitely people you want to build mindshare and engagement with. The next ring out is who should you engage with? Who, who would be smart for you to engage with? In my example, it might be foundations that support food-related work. That would be, it'd be great to connect with some of them. Maybe it's family foundations. And then the third outer ring is who could you engage with? Um, and, and that's kind of the, the bigger world. So I'll give, you, I'll give you another example of this. I've been very involved as a volunteer for years with an organization called the National Brain Tumor Society. And the National Brain Tumor Society does a lot of patient support work and raises money and does research to find cures for brain tumors. So who must they engage with? Well, certainly people affected by brain tumors, but also clinicians, scientists, the NIH, the CDC, you know, people who work in the space. Who should they engage with? Well, ideally, they might do education towards people who are at high risk for brain tumors or people who were recently diagnosed. And does it really matter that all of you have heard of them? Not necessarily. Not everybody in the world is going to know about this organization or engage with it, nor should they. That's the, the bigger outer circle. So if you're at the National Brain Tumor Society, you don't start with trying to get everybody in the world to know who you are. You would try to reach those core people who are directly affected and ideally measure and benchmark awareness and perceptions with that core group over time to know that you've effectively reached them. Great. Yeah. Thank you. That's super helpful. Yes. Um, and it's really, it really focuses the conversation and probably puts it into context for everybody whose executive director thinks that everybody needs to know about them. So, you know, <laughs> it makes your task a little bit more manageable when you think about who is our audience. Um, all right, let's go over to some of the, uh, the audience questions here. Terry is asking, what do you feel are the essential components of a case for support? Yeah. Okay. So a case for support um, in, you know, the way I think of a case for support is that it fundamentally has to do three things. First, a case for support has to be inspiring. It must inspire. If you're going to ask a donor to make a gift that is beyond what they've given in the past, they better be psyched to do it. Um, the second is it has to be informative, but the right amount of information. So if I am a donor who's particularly interested in the, let's say, the science of the National Brain Tumor Society, then that case for support needs to give me just enough science that I understand what it's about. But if I'm a donor who's interested in the warm fuzzy, how people's lives are transformed, um, maybe I don't need a ton of scientific information, right? So the right level of information is important. 
And then the third thing I think it has to do, a case for support has to do, is it has to uh, be very credible. It has to reinforce the idea that this is a good investment, that I am not, um, if I'm making you know, a, a, a really significant gift, that I'm not kind of throwing it away. And credibility is oftentimes not told, it's demonstrated. So when my name is misspelled, when somebody doesn't get back to me promptly, those are dings on credibility. Um, I wouldn't encourage an organization to do a lot of writing about credibility, <laughs> like to say we're very credible. So inspire, inform, and maybe another way to talk about credibility is reassure. Reassure your donor that it's a great investment. I don't believe that a case statement or a case for support has to be any particular length uh, or any size. I see there's a couple questions about format. Um, I have seen really, really compelling case for support, case statements that were like tiny, little. I've seen incredible case statements that were just Microsoft Word documents, so beautifully written, so moving. Um, and I have seen beautiful, sexy, 64 page, glossy, full <laughs> color photo case statements. And no, those are great no. too. If your yes. donor expects that. And if, you know, if you're asking somebody for like a seven, eight figure gift, they might expect that. Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's expand on that a little bit, Sarah. Talk about some of the creative, innovative formats you've seen. I mean, we've been talking about, you know, a case statement doesn't just have to be a brochure. These days, it should be a video. It should be a, you know, a, a slide deck. It should be, have you seen, have you worked with any organizations to go beyond the, the sort of traditional formats? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, in in pre-COVID times, the the approach that most organizations took, not all, but many organizations took, was they started by producing one kind of flagship print piece, the kind of piece you could, you know, when you're having a face-to-face -face meeting with a donor, you could hand to them and walk through and they could take it home and they could say to their spouse, look at how cool this is. And that piece, the writing and design of that piece would give you all of the visual elements, all the copy you'd need to make all kinds of other stuff throughout the life of the campaign. Um, but actually right before COVID and certainly in COVID, what we have seen is more and more organizations starting with the lead piece being a deck, either a PowerPoint, sometimes Google Slides. We're seeing a lot of Google Slide decks where it's still ideally designed and beautiful. It shouldn't feel, you know, like it's like, you know, some Microsoft template thing. It's gotta be, gotta have a little bit of razzle dazzle. But the beautiful thing about starting with the deck is that you can really customize it. So, so to go back to what I was saying early, earlier about a case for support being informative, if you know you're talking to a donor who cares about something and you're putting together a deck, you can strip out all the slides that aren't interesting for them and layer in more slides that will be. The other thing we've seen a lot of organizations doing is building either in Wix or in Squarespace, building a campaign microsite. So um, Wix is a really, really easy website building tool that a lot of nonprofits can you know, build your own website in very inexpensively. It's particularly good for a capital project where there is actually a building or a thing where you might wanna post photos of construction or you know, a, new, a new this or a new that. Um, and what's really nice about, about using a tool like Wix is you can keep people coming back to the site and keep them informed about the campaign, like construction progress, things like that. Um, 
You know, a lot of organizations do create videos. Um, and I honestly have mixed feelings about that. The only organizations I've worked with who've done that successfully are organizations who already do a lot of videos. Like videos, video production can be expensive and it's time consuming. And if you already have the mechanics for that, the team for that, people who understand, you know, your messaging and all of that, great. But if you don't, it can, you know, a video can cost $20,000, dollars $40,000 to produce. And many donors don't want a video. So I think, I think you have to be um, strategic about whether or not that's, you know, good to enter into the mix. Yep. I think that's a good point. All good points. All right. Julie's asking, what's one thing I can do to increase the engagement we get for our social media posts? So before well, you answer that, before you dive into that, I think, I think as I was watching the chat that Julie is in Chile. Oh, cool. She's from Chile. So, Julie, I hope you speak Portuguese. But anyway, that's there. I just wanted to call that out because I called out Nana from Georgia. So I had to call out Julie from Chile. Now you're on. You're, you're oh, our, yes. our, inter, our international cheerleader. Yes. She says yes. She, she's in uh, Chile. Chile. Yes. Right? She's oh, she Chile. speaks Spanish, though, Andrea. Ah, Spanish, not Portuguese. Okay. No. <laughs> so what can you do to, to increase engagement in your social media posts? Well, you know, social media is, is a dialogue. It's a conversation. So, um, so for starters, be in the conversation for real. Don't just post on social media when you are trying to promote a thing. Follow along with the hashtags that are relevant to your organization. Share resources where you have them you know, contribute in, in a kind of conversational supportive way. And that way, when you do post something that you're trying to boost, you are more likely to have the credibility of your audience knowing who you are and being interested in what you have to say. Um, you know, in a kind of related note, I think it's really important with social to stay to stay in the conversation. A lot of organizations with limited capacity might do something like you know, just go online and post one thing twice a week and just get just to get something out there. And again, you can do that. But again, but if you're not following the conversation every day in real time, it might be that your community is very caught up in something. And that post you just made feels inappropriate to the conversation that they're having or feels like it's not the right thing at the right time. Um, so, you know, stay in the conversation and post things that feel relevant and useful and helpful, not just things that are promotional for your organization. Excellent. All right. So, Susan, uh, thank you for reposting. Susan sent us a lovely, lovely paragraph uh, with lots of details. And I did. Oops. You just deleted it, Andrea. Where did oh. it go? Uh, or somebody. Okay. So, so Susan's question is how effective is rebranding? But I was going to say, she sent us so many details. Um, and I asked her just to, to narrow it down to one, one sentence, because it's hard for us to, to listen to follow the conversation and read all those details at the same time. So thank you, Susan. So how effective is rebranding? And that's almost a loaded question, right? <laughs> It's not a loaded question. It's a great question. It's honestly, Susan, it's a question I think more organizations should ask. And it's a, you know, as somebody who's been working in nonprofit branding for a very long time, probably about 10 years ago, we started asking that question ourselves. We started saying, we hear anecdotally from our clients that rebranding was a good idea. It made them feel, you know, like they 
got a sort of fresh coat of paint. It, it was energizing for the staff, energizing for donors, but does it really work? What were the organizations who set out to rebrand trying to do? Were they trying to raise money, raise awareness, get new board members? And did they actually do those things? So uh, back in, I think 2017, and I just chatted out a link to this, we hired a market research firm uh, called the FDR Group, and we conducted a survey with them where um, the FDR group recruited nonprofits who had rebranded and we suppressed Big Duck's clients from this list. So this was not just us talking to our clients saying, hey, did rebranding work for you? It was really us going out to organizations we did not know and asking them if they had rebranded. We asked them specifically why they rebranded, what they did that they called rebranding, like what were they changing and what were the outcomes? Did they achieve those things? Um, and I just chatted you a link to an ebook where you can download the results. The takeaway was, um, yes, rebranding does work. Um, it works in particular if your organization is rebranding at a time where there is other significant growth and change. Um, so if you have a new executive director, um, a new kind of you know visionary change in, in your leadership team, a new strategic plan. The organizations that rebrand around those kinds of big life cycle moments are the organizations who say they get the most impact from rebranding, which makes perfect sense, right? I mean, if you're if you're going through a big organizational moment of change, the rebranding becomes a way you express that change publicly. And um, and so it's sort of correlated with, you know, with with all of that change. Um, we also, one of the most interesting findings from that study um, that we looked at was, is it better if you're going to rebrand to change little things and do it kind of in a subtle way? Like, should you change your logo this year and your tagline next year and your website the year after that? Or should you do one big flip the switch and change everything all at once. A lot of organizations are very wary to make big changes at once, particularly if you have a name or something you know, really dramatic that you're gonna change. And one of the things that really surprised me from our findings was that the organizations that changed a lot of things at once had better outcomes than organizations who changed things incrementally or only changed little things. And I have theories why that is. Um, but the, the, study, the study showed that actually, if you want to over time make a lot of changes, you are better off, you will have better outcomes if you make a lot of changes at once. Andrea, you wanna pick another question? Sure. Um, <clears throat> let's see, Ellen has asked this question. Uh, we acquired a similar organization, both celebrating 50 and 200 years of service, planning, uh, um, I'm sorry, you know, oh. planning, uh, planning to rebrand and in a feasibility study for a campaign, any advice about timing on the process? Yes. Um, so if you have acquired another organization or merged an organization, usually that is that is a time when there is some moment of strategic reflection and change. Maybe it's a formal strategic planning process. Maybe it's not just it's informal you know, coming together of the two or legacy organizations to talk about how they now become one. But um, but the ideal order of operations is strategic planning first, because you really want people on the team aligned around the vision and mission and values of this new joined organization. And, um, and the rebranding work or the branding work would emerge from that. The, the branding work, which is to say your brand strategy, your name, your logo, your tagline, the colors you used, all that kind of stuff, all those, th those are all assets and they need to express your vision, your mission, your values. They need to feel authentic to who you are becoming 
as an organization, not not necessarily who you've been in the past. With that kind of work, and particularly if that work includes messaging, clear and compelling ways that you can write and speak about your organization, um, that everybody can write and speak about the organization, that actually gives you a whole suite of things that are very helpful to use in a capital campaign. So as you get into your capital campaign feasibility, you hopefully start to hear from you know donors who've maybe supported you, your annual fund, like, oh, I, I feel like I'm really clear what this new organization is, or I feel like I've heard that they do blah. And, and so that messaging work, that branding work sets a foundation of understanding and connection that hopefully becomes uh, useful to leverage in your in your fundraising. So, Sarah, let me ask a follow follow on question to that. You know, often uh, we have to push organizations before they move into a feasibility study or a campaign to do strategic planning so that they are much clearer about what it is they're supposed to do. So yeah. we think about, about branding and the kind of strategic planning that you're going to need in order to clarify your campaign and your campaign objectives. Do you see that as being one process or side-by-side processes or how do those work together? Well, I, you know, I think we use the term strategic planning very loosely, much like we use the term branding very loosely. You know, for some organizations, strategic planning is a months or years long, very formal process with a million meetings and a lot of wordsmithing. And there's not only the vision and mission part, but there's operational planning, budgeting and a lot of a lot of um you know, heavy lifting, administrative heavy lifting. For other organizations, strategic planning is, hey, let's let's spend, you know, an hour at our board meeting with the board and the senior staff talking about our vision and mission and making sure that we are aligned around our vision and mission. And we have this little board kind of micro retreat and everybody affirms that our vision and mission continue to be the same. And that was strategic planning, <laughs> you know? Um, so I don't believe that you organizationally have to go through a formal or very intensive process. Um, I've seen organizations do all of those things very effectively. What I do think is critical is alignment around where you're heading as an organization. And and it's particularly critical if you're going to try to rebrand, because if you are going to put out on the table maybe the possibility of a name change or a logo change or a tagline or something like that. If if your leadership team, if your board is not aligned around the vision and mission and where you're heading, then it will be impossible to come up with a brand or a visual identity or something that those people can agree on. Um, Because the branding work that is done when you rebrand is really just an expression of those things. So, so whether or not you call it strategic planning, whether or not it's a big fancy process, I think um, for my money, um, it's really about alignment. It's about you know um, everybody really agreeing what this organization exists to do. Right. Yeah. Thank you. I want to want to just sort of close the loop on that question because I think the final part of it was that they were thinking about doing a feasibility study, and when does all of this fit with the feasibility study? Right. Yes. And, and maybe you want to just pick that that thread. Sure. Up. Yeah. And actually just spoke to an organization last week where they have a new executive director and there's been a lot of change at the organization because of covid. And they did a feasibility study two years ago for a campaign. And now they are thinking about doing strategic planning 
and uh, and some rebranding work. And we were talking about exactly that. I actually think that the feasibility study, if you've already done it, becomes a key piece of research that can help inform the strategic planning. But if you haven't done feasibility, I would encourage you if, you know, in a, in a perfect world to do the strategic planning piece, make any changes to the branding if you need to do them, and then wait to do the feasibility afterwards, because the feasibility afterwards is going to give you a sense of how connected do your donors feel to the brand? Are they, do they, you know, identify with it and want to support it? Um, most organizations, you know, those things happen a little bit out of, out of synchrony. Um, so I think the key is to make sure that whoever is doing any of those things, feasibility, strategic planning, branding, whoever you're working with, that everybody has access to everything. And as much as possible, if you're going to go and interview donors, um, you layer in multi-dimensional questions, because it might be that that feasibility study you're about to bark on could ask some questions about the vision and mission that could be useful for strategic planning too, or might be helpful to for the branding process. Excellent. All right. So we are going to take our uh, seventh inning stretch, literally and figuratively. We're going to take 30 to 60 seconds now to let everybody stretch. And we're going to talk about a couple of opportunities here at the toolkit for people to join us. And Sarah, if you have something to promote or share, um, I'm going to give you a, in just a minute. So the first thing I'm going to post in the chat is an upcoming webinar that we have on Friday, October 1st, which is this coming Friday. Um, we're doing, Andrea and I will be doing a webinar called How to Plan an Effective and Efficient Campaign Using New Tools and Technology. So I've just posted the link in the chat box. Um, if you're listening on a podcast, you can go to our website and learn how to sign up for this free webinar. Um, and we will be talking about tools and technology and how to integrate them into your capital campaign if you think uh, your executive director would benefit from hearing from us or board members, please do go ahead and share that link with them. The second thing I want to share, and then I'm going to let Sarah share one of her resources, is we so uh, we have a program called Capital Campaign Toolkit Mini Campaigns, and it is an eight-week program. And the goal is to raise 100,000 or more for a small effort. And the timing couldn't be better for your year-end fundraising. If you want to raise $100,000 or more with us as a team uh, in the next eight weeks, we're starting it in mid-October, you can go to the Capital Campaign Toolkit website, and I'll post that link as well in just a second for our mini campaign program. I want to tell you, it's run in a cohort. We limit it to eight organizations. So the first eight organizations to sign up get to participate and it's an amazing opportunity. So I hope you'll check it out um, and join us. Now, Sarah, if you wanna share anything or promote it in the chat, you can, and then we're gonna get back to questions. Yeah, I have two quick things. Uh, I will chat them both out. The first is that Big Duck has a ton of free eBooks, recorded webinars, live webinars, and other resources at bigduck.com slash insights. You can go there and you can uh, poke around and filter a whole bunch of ways. But one of the resources that's there that I, I we have just shared as a PDF for all of you um, is, and I'm chatting this link now, this is a communication self-assessment. So this is extracted from my book, The Nonprofit Communications Engine. And if you uh, download this PDF, 
what it really gives you the opportunity to do is to self-assess, to sort of so take a step back and look at um, the outcomes you're achieving with communications, the strategy, how your team is performing, and kind of all a lot of best practices that maybe um, you may or may not think about on a daily basis. And um, if you're in a situation where you maybe work with other people that you want to get on the same page with about communications, one thing that I hear is handy is to have um, you know, share this with your colleagues and have different people fill it out and then have a meeting and compare your results and talk about it. See, do you, you know, is your sense of what is going really well in your communications or maybe what's not going so well aligned with those of your, your colleagues, your executive director or, or uh, colleagues in other departments? Um, and sometimes those conversations really help people get clear, particularly as you're going into a new fiscal year, what you should invest in, what you should work on in the, in the future year. Excellent. That is a fantastic resource. Okay. So everybody seventh inning stretch, literally figuratively. Okay. We've got some amazing questions still, and I saw some in the chat, so I'm going to be pinging back and forth, but let's go to Gary's question. I think it's super interesting. So Sarah, what is the most impressive case statement that you've seen uh, that did the job for their capital campaign that was successful? And of course, you know, why, what makes a case statement impressive or successful? What do you think? Well, uh, great question. I'm just looking to see, I mean, you know, I have to say, Gary, I am biased because Big Duck does a lot of this work and I have seen a lot of things that our team has prepared. I'm just sorting through some of them. I'll just chat you a couple of case studies here. But um, yeah, so here's a link to some of the, the case studies we've worked on. I think one of my favorite one of my favorite successful campaigns, which is in this link, is um, is a case for support for the Jewish Theological Seminary. And the reason I thought this was such an interesting and successful um, uh, case is that the feasibility study for this campaign showed that this organization, which is essentially a you know a higher ed institution that that trains people to become rabbis and cantors, that their capital campaign was appealing to donors for a whole bunch of reasons and that the donors were not aligned about why they wanted to support this organization. There were some people who only wanted to make a gift because they wanted to build a new library. There were some people who really wanted to support the dorm. There were some people who really wanted to support specific programs. And so one of the things that uh, that our team came up with that I thought was a brilliant solution to what the feasibility study was, emerged with was a modular case for support. So there was a kind of an outer, and you can see this in, uh, I'll, I'll um, chat this specific link, you can see the pictures, but the idea was basically that the um, three or four core areas that made donors want to support this organization each got their own little book and they could all work together, but they could all work separately. And so what that gave the development team the opportunity to do is to really customize uh, the kit that people got in a way that um, really spoke to what what had emerged in the feasibility uh, work. So I really love that one. That was a successful campaign. It exceeded its, its quiet phase goal. It's now in its public phase. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it was just a neat, a neat solution to a tricky problem that a lot of organizations who do comprehensive campaigns struggle with. 
Sarah, you just said something that Andrea and I don't use this terminology, but I think it's so interesting, a quiet phase goal. And we talk around those types of things and say you can't go public until you've raised this much of your goal in the quiet phase. But what a succinct you know, way of expressing it, because then every board member knows you can't go public until you've reached the quiet phase goal. And I think that, I, I don't know, Andrea, what you think, but I think that's such a smart way of thinking about it because every board member is chomping at the bit to go public. Um, not every board member. Okay. Lots of board Hopefully, members. It would be nice if they were. <laughs> right. Well, please God, let them be chomping at the bit to go public. <laughs> well, the problem is they're chomping at the bit too soon. They want to jump the yes. gun. And yes. so th that's what I mean by that. And so, you know, if they know that the quiet phase goal is this much and we can't go public until we've hit that quiet phase goal, I think that's such an interesting way of looking at it. Andrea, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fine. I'm not I'm not. I'm not as uh -huh not about it, but I think it's I think it's fine. I think, oh. it's, I think it's just all right. I think all right. it's clear and struck, good. struck and a chord in me. I mean that assumes that you make a very an early determination about what that goal is specifically. And the, you know, so and given that the campaign goal shifts and changes, then the public phase goal shifts and changes. So the minute you put a number in front of someone and says, well, you know, we need to have raised, you know, $8 million before we can go public, you know, that may change with the other goal. So that, it, it is nice and clear. I appreciate that. And, you know, people want to glom onto specific numbers <laughs> and I often want to keep them away from doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the compromise in that situation, which is often what I hear fundraisers do is, you know, there's the initial fundraising goal for the campaign. And, and the quiet phase goal is usually to not consider going public until at least 60 percent of that right. has been and raised. We talk about and, that a lot. Right? Yeah. So if we talk about 60 yes. percent, even if the campaign goal is yes. a little bit of a moving target, I think people start to get they start to get clear that they're, you know, what the dollar amount is that we got to get over, even if that, even that right. is a little bit of yes, a moving yes. target. And we, we talk about that a lot. I mean, these days we talk about 70% or, you know, higher in the, in the quiet phase, but, but, you know, I've had a campaign where, where they, they will end up raising twice as much as they set out to raise. And, and it would have been a serious mistake to have tied the, tied the kickoff to the, you know, to a specific number. Right. Um, but a percent, a percent was, was terrific. Um, All right. We have uh, a couple of more questions as some are coming in through the chat, which I'll go fish around for, but one of them uh, is from an anonymous attendee and they're asking, do you have suggestions for telling your story, sharing impact stories that don't feel like you are exploiting your clients? We work with the homeless and that certainly is um, you know, things that people in our sector have been talking about for a long time now, how yeah. not to exploit clients. So what are you, what are you advising your clients on with regard to that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, there's, there's, um, there are a lot of ways to talk about your work. And certainly when we, when we tell stories, if we, if we tell the story of a client or we tell the story of a community impact, we draw people in with emotions. There's a lot of research that suggests that telling a personal story 
is compelling and moving, but it does often uh, tokenize people and can be really an inappropriate use of, of the relationship that you have. Um, in a lot of messaging work, I think, I mean, there are a lot of different messaging frameworks, but one of the ones that I think is very simple and easy to use that doesn't uh, require you to tell a personal story um, is problem solution impact, right? So instead of talking about a specific client um, start by talking about the problem. What What is the challenge in the community? Why is there a homelessness challenge in, in your community? What's going on that affects a lot of people, not just a specific person? Um, then the solution is hopefully your organization or some of the programs. Like, what are you doing to help solve that problem? Um, why are you so in, essential to the to the solution? Um, and then the impact is talking a bit about the outcomes. You know, maybe it's how many years you have been in the field, how many people you have helped transition into stable housing, or how many um, uh, things have changed in the community because of because of your your involvement in it. Um, so problem solution impact is one way I think you can avoid talking about individuals and tell a compelling story. I think one of the things that is um, also part of the best kept secret problem kind of goes back to that is that so often you as a person in your organization you just you you know so much more than people on the outside do about who you are what you do at your organization and why it's important and so sometimes people inside organizations forget the person on the outside that they're writing to in that email or talking to um, doesn't know all the stuff about the problem or the solution. Um, sometimes we use a lot of industry jargon and the person you're talking to doesn't know the industry jargon. Um, sometimes we take for granted that people understand there even is a problem, like that homelessness is a problem in our community. Um, that feels like, like the kind of thing that a lot of people I know would, would um, think they wouldn't have to explain, but actually talking about that um, is not only useful for people who may not know, but it sets groundwork, right? It sort of grounds people in this is what we're talking about. And this is really important um, as opposed to just leading with, oh, we do X, Y, Z, P, D, and Q, which sounds kind of like a sales pitch. Um, so problem solution impact is one, one of many approaches, but there are a lot of approaches to messaging work and um, that's a big topic. <laughs> I mean that, that that helps you know you know I think there's always a tension between the people who want to tell stories, specific stories as a way of illustrating a problem and people who can talk about a problem more you know more broadly. Um, you know if you read some of the the communications people, you know they're always talking about telling stories. And many, much of the direct mail, you know, of the direct response um, pieces, you know, tell stories about Johnny or Mary or, or whatever, which always makes me cringe some. Um, and I suppose, that, you know, it's a question of how you how you parse that, how the, 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 the message of being sure to tell stories because they're most compelling. Yeah. And, um, and honestly, those stories, I mean, a lot of those stories are fictional. Um, but also a lot of those stories really uphold tenets of structural racism and discrimination and bias. And right. so I think, I think you have to really pressure test those stories and not just have one person writing and producing them, but really look at them through the eyes of a lot of different people to see, you know, what stereotypes are these reinforcing, yeah. um, 
And, uh, you know, besides, besides the, the, the human who might be the, the subject, whether or not they've given permission. Yeah. All right. Good. I wanted to go over to the chat box to be Shally's question. And then I think we'll probably let Sarah make some final key takeaways and leave, leave everyone with some, some words of wisdom. Um, but Shally's asking. Barbara, Barbara Sally. We know Barbara. Oh, oh. I'm sorry. I, I <laughs> forgot that. My apologies. Um, it just says B here. <laughs> At what point during the campaign process does it make sense to invest in, a, in campaign communications? So, so Claire Taylor Hansen probably talked about this when she came to this chat, and I imagine that that Amy and Andrea could could surface the podcast recording of that if that's helpful. But you know, one of the one of the ways that we often think about capital campaign communications is that um, going into that, in order to inspire and inform and reassure that donor, it's very helpful to have a theme or a concept, a kind of a, a way that the, the story you're trying to tell gets abstracted into, into a bigger concept or a bigger idea. And I think it's really, really helpful, whether or not you hire somebody externally or not to help with your case for support. I think it's really helpful to brainstorm what is the theme, what is the concept for this campaign really out of the gate. Because oftentimes at the very start of a campaign, what happens is the feasibility study and the planning around whatever you're fundraising for leads to a document that's pretty dry. You know, it says like, yeah, we I mean, we, I've worked on a number with hospitals where the, you know, where the initial case for support is like, we're going to build a new building and we're going to have X new hospital beds and X new surgical rooms and five new research labs. Well, that's really cool, but that's not really inspiring, you know, and if you can start to evolve um, a case, a, you know, concept or a theme that's bigger, like, um, you know, uh, in service to the community or in service to the cure or something that is more about the outcomes, more about the transformation that this campaign creates. Um, having that theme, having that idea as a yardstick will make your writing more compelling because you will hopefully move away from writing like 15 new hospital beds um, towards writing something that's more about outcomes. And, you know, donors want to support the outcome. They don't really care about the bed. They care about healthy patients. Um, so, um, so I think it's really great to start thinking about your communications right from the beginning. Um, if you are good, if your lead donors are likely to be people who are very close to the organization, like board members, odds are pretty good. They're going to be pretty forgiving and you hopefully can go to them with something that is like we're fundraising for 15 more hospital beds and they will hopefully feel connected enough to the organization to still support that. But the minute you're gonna try to broaden the pool, I think it is really important to think about the communications as a way that you are gonna reach and engage people and, and inspire them. Um, and, and there's a lot of ways to do that. All right, good. I just want to remind everybody that for our paying toolkit subscribers, our members, we do have some templates for communication plans and sample communication plans for those of you that are in smaller or mid-sized shops that may not be hiring a, a communication firms. Um, we do have materials and resources inside the Capital Campaign Toolkit uh, for those of you that are that are working with us. So All right. Rachel has asked a good question relating to the, to the 
the topic of when to do communications and how much she wants to know what percentage of your campaign budget should go for communications. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's not one, Rachel, that I have an easy answer for because I have seen organizations, I've, I've worked on a billion dollar campaign where almost no money was sent on communications. And I've worked on, you know, $25 million campaigns that spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on communications. So I think that's really to do with the mission of the organization and um, how hard you have to work to engage your engage your donors. Um, I just chatted out a link also to a free ebook we have about capital campaign communications, which has some examples and speaks more to some of these issues. So that might be a useful resource too. Great. All right. I want to leave enough time, Sarah, for you. I know we're wrapping up here. So if you want to share some final words of wisdom and uh, maybe key takeaways. You know, I, I, I guess my key takeaway is um, to think of communications, whether it's part of a capital campaign or day-to-day -day communications or, or around, uh, you know, shorter fundraising lift, um, as um, as a, as a strategic thing, not just a not just a thing to get done. There is a tendency sometimes to think of communications as, oh, I just got to get this e news out, or I just got to get this thing done. I just got to tweet. Um, but I would encourage you to always go back to the question, why are we tweeting? Why are we sending out this e-news? Who is it for? What do we hope to achieve with that? Asking those kinds of questions and building a muscle around asking those kinds of questions, it's really easy to do. You don't have to pay a consultant to do it, but it will cause you to um, challenge your assumptions about what you need to do and how to spend your time because your time is extremely limited, especially in a small organization. And so, um, so as you start to think about who is this for and what are we trying to achieve? Um, I hope that will help you um, make, you know, better, better decisions and better communications. Excellent. Sarah, um, as always, the clarity of your thinking and your ability to be articulate about these topics is awe-inspiring. Oh, thank you. Thanks, thank you. Sarah. It's thank lovely you. to be here. Thank you for joining us. We'll have the links in the, in the link, uh, in the, description of the podcast so everybody can find all the amazing resources you shared. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining Amy and Andrea for today's All About Capital Campaigns. To learn more about them and their work together, go to capitalcampaigntoolkit.com.